I see this as the greatest investment opportunity I think we will ever see in our lifetimes. And the more people understand that, the more excited people get, getting you know everyone else to kind of understand where that is, it is currently where we are. But once everybody understands it, the investment opportunity is over. This is Open Out Crypto, a podcast exploring how blockchain and cryptocurrencies are shaping the financial markets of tomorrow. With your hosts, Rumi Morales and Colleen Sullivan. Before we even begin, here's our obligatory disclaimer. The views Rumi and I share on the show are our own and not attributable to our respective firms and any other entities or projects we're involved with. Our firms may be investors or traders in some of the companies and projects we discuss on the show. Nothing we say should be considered as investment advice. And while we're always trying to be as accurate and timely as possible, sometimes we're wrong. You should always do your own research. Finally, I'm a lawyer, but not yours, and nothing I say should be construed as legal advice. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Open Out Crypto. As always, it's my pleasure to be with Colleen Sullivan. I am Rumi Morales. Both uh, Colleen and I have been active investors in the blockchain space, but also have a strong background in traditional finance and law and all that other good stuff. So we are here to try to translate and bridge those worlds for you today. Hi, Colleen. How are you doing? Good. How's it going, Rumi? It's great. Uh, I got. I got to say, it's been an interesting time uh, for crypto. I know we always say that, but in in this case, what I appreciate is it's interesting because it's kind of quiet, and it's in moments like this that I really am thankful for. As we know, crypto is a pretty fast-moving space, and uh, everyone says it's so volatile, but then when there's less volatility, you actually have time to think, <laughs> and you and you can put some of the stuff in perspective. Yeah, it's a gift, really. Um, so I, I don't mind it either. It's, it's a good time. Yeah. And so for me these days, it's just been somewhat quiet. I've been thinking, though, of regulation, because usually regulation is what happens after there is a lot of market movement or volatility and attention. And I would love your thoughts, Colleen, on where we are with regulation these days, because there was a time when I was hopeful, but increasingly when, I, when, I'm, when I'm feeling and when I'm hearing, certainly from the United States, isn't the greatest. And I got to tell you, I'm, first of all, really excited because our guest for this podcast is Perry Ann Boring. Perry Ann, as you know, is the founder of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, the leading and most important blockchain lobbying organization based in Washington, D.C. And we'll ask her some of these questions, too. But got to tell you, I am very confused with where regulation is right now. For every policymaker or regulator that says, oh, we're still studying this or need to think about it or to talk about it, you are handicapping yourself. You are cutting yourself at the knees and will never be able to walk or run fast enough to catch up where innovation is going in this space. And unless the regulators and policymakers are going to understand that it is completely urgent now for them to pay attention to this, uh, this market is going to continue to grow and to thrive without the need for any type of regulatory supervision or an oversight. And my question is, is that a bad thing? If you have autonomous regulation, regulation built in code, is that such a bad thing? I consider myself a, a public servant of sorts. You know, I grew up with my dad in the government. I always did a lot of work in financial policy. This is the first time in my life where I'm just like, uh, who, who needs regulators for this? Well, that's a lot to unpack, Rumi. <laughs> so let's start first maybe with what is going on with the disconnect between our US regulators and politicians and this younger generation who's building this new technology. And I think the first thing to think about is there is a significant age and diversity gap between the mm -hmm. two. 
So you look at the average age of our senators in this 117th Congress, 64 years old. Average age of our representatives, 58 years old. Janet Yellen, 74 years old. Powell, 68 years old. Chairman Gensler, 63 years old. CFTC Commissioner Berkovitz, who we're going to talk about shortly, is also in his 60s. And then you take a look at the diversity statistics. Not much better. So we've got 635 members of Congress. We have only about 170 females. We've got about 60 African-Americans, 54 Hispanic Latino, 21 Asian American. You get my point. Then we look at the majority of the US population today is millennial and younger. By 2030, not only will a majority of the population be millennial and younger, they will make up the majority voters. So I think we've got about nine years here that it may take to close this gap. But the millennials and younger, I mean, if you think about the older ones, they went through 08, right, the 2008 financial crisis, and they were hit really hard. And then they got hit again with the pandemic. So there's a lived experience there mm -hmm. that just differs from our older politicians and policymakers. And I think the biggest point, though, right. is that our younger generation is digitally native. And that is a significant difference. So that's kind of how I think about the overall picture. And then, you know, if, if you'd like, we can kind of go into some yeah. of the regulatory events happening right now. Yeah, I, I, I would love to do that. But I, but I would also point out that everything that you said with those diversity statistics are so important, not just for crypto and blockchain, but for many other issues that I feel younger people are concerned about that they feel that policymakers don't get. But I will say, for the most part, I feel like when it comes to issues around marriage, equality, social issues, I feel like it's, you know, our politicians are trying to learn. With crypto, it's like the door is just shut, or very few are trying to open it. I don't understand the inflexibility. I do not understand, in particular, why people who are focused on lifting all boats, fixing our terrible situation with economic inequality, helping people in communities that are unbanked or underbanked have access to capital without predatory lenders. Why are these leaders not learning about crypto? Because crypto is going to help those populations the most of all. They don't have the lived experience, Rumi, right? I mean, they don't have the lived experience. So I think often there's not an understanding of the technology. And it goes back to that not being digitally native and not seeing things through the eyes of the younger generation. This isn't true in all cases, but I think part of the reason regulators and politicians are able to do what they do at the lower salaries they receive is because the financial system worked for them in some way, shape, or form, so they can afford to be in public service. That's not the case for millennials and younger, who the financial system really hasn't been working for, which is why we're seeing all of these developments in crypto to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of what's going on. I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like the hits keep coming for DeFi, right? So CFTC Commissioner Berkowitz gave a speech in early June called Climate Change and Decentralized Finance, New Challenges for the CFTC. That's quite a mouthful, okay. <laughs> right? So now yeah. we're like talking about DeFi and climate change in the right. same sentence, uh, which is interesting. But he questioned whether a financial system without intermediaries, specifically DeFi, could be a benefit to the public at all. And he also hmm. referenced DeFi 
as a Hobbesian marketplace with each person looking out for themselves and wondered if DeFi could become a shadow financial system. I think we should unpack like, some of that, like, right? <laughs> I know. Well, there's lots to unpack here. I mean, who would thought? Who would think that all of us into the into regulation would actually need a lot of therapists? Right. But uh, what is it? T- tell me more. I'm just curious where he's going with yeah, this. Yeah. So where he's not wrong is that you know if you look at a very very tiny part of the DeFi marketplace right now, decentralized derivatives exchanges, on its face to the extent that the underlying are commodities like Bitcoin, that would fall under the jurisdiction of the CFTC. So that part, I don't really you know, question. I, th- I think in that case, it's more of a, an issue of if, if the system's truly decentralized, like the Bitcoin system. I mean, there's no CEO to call to shut it down or to require to register. So that's an issue that the regulators are grappling with. But I think it goes to the point that you made before And that's that, is this system self-regulating inherently? Mm -hmm. And I think here's Mm -hmm. where it's kind of fascinating to me, and and tying this back to Berkowitz, you know, talking about is there benefit in a system without intermediaries? Well, let's talk about our KGOs, our favorite topic, right, Rumi? So Mm -hmm. as most of our listeners will know, our KGOs, family office, trading firm, essentially blew up earlier this year. Losses said to be in excess of $60 billion. Credit Suisse, among other primes, are going to take significant losses. Credit Suisse, I think the last I read, is expected to take a $5.5 billion loss on this. So, and what happened there was Arcagos was trading with multiple prime brokers, none of which had transparency into what the other primes were doing. So there was no way to get a sense of Archegos's overall risk to the system. Additionally, Archegos was trading um, swaps, right, which are exempt from certain disclosure rules. So you have that combination, and there's a lot of hidden risk in the system. So Brad Copen, CMT Digital's head trader, and I talk about this a lot where we think that all of the risk in traditional finance is systemic. Mm-hmm. But if Archegos had happened in DeFi, it's an individual risk to Archegos. So what I mean by that right. is think about the way DeFi works today. All transactions have to be over collateralized. So the minute that Archegos hits certain thresholds, it would have been automatically liquidated, those positions. And that happens 24-7, 365 to protect the system itself. Taken a step further, although we can have cross-collateral on different platforms in DeFi, Mm -hmm. it's all transparent. None of that's hidden. It's all on-chain. So to the extent any of those kind of collateral risks exist in DeFi, they're discoverable. So Archegos affects only Archegos. Let's think about this for a minute. How many employees at Credit Suisse work in the prime brokerage division? Hardly any. But none of them have any transparency into what Credit Suisse is doing in that prime brokerage division. But guess who's going to suffer come bonus time? Those employees. Mm -hmm. That's the second order effect that I'm talking about. In DeFi, the problem sits with Archegos. It doesn't affect an exchange. It doesn't affect a custodian. It doesn't affect a prime, and it doesn't affect their employees. Archegos is taken out immediately through the automated liquidation process and probably doesn't even get there 
because those hidden risks are discoverable. That's a fantastic point. And it actually takes me into the way back machine as I think about long-term capital management back in the late 90s as well. I'm not as prepared to you know, compare wh- whether LTCM could have survived in a DeFi environment, but obviously there are similarities. I remember when there, that bailout happened and it was like, wait a minute, what? And people are just trying to unthread who owed what, where's this money, this, that, and the other. Just the lack of transparency and also just the guys that have been in this place for a long time just doing this over and over again with the same people. I think Archegos, I think the head of it used to be at Tiger, right? LTCM had a bunch of people in financial institutions who kind of buddy-buddy know each other. And that's where they can raise these amounts of ridiculous money and try to manage it. Versus in a DeFi world where, look... Uh, you can get mad at everyone that did that thing with GameStop, you know, but the point is there are a lot of potential people out there that want to get involved in the financial system. DeFi enables that access a lot more. It is not just more transparent, but it welcomes far more participants as well. And I have to think overall, that's really great risk diversification. And we should be applauding this. So again, Congress, policymakers, please wake up a little bit and see all the great benefits here when we're talking about cryptocurrencies and decentralized systems. It enables access to capital. It reduces risk. It actually really does. Rumi, you raise a great point on long-term capital. And I guess we should counter some of what we're saying with the fact that some of our regulators and politicians do get it. So let's contrast Commissioner Mm, Berkovitz's comments with former Chair Giancarlo's comments And what Giancarlo said in connection with the 08 financial crisis in a speech in 2019 was, what a difference it would have made a decade ago if blockchain technology had been the informational foundation of Wall Street's derivatives exposures. At a minimum, it would certainly have allowed for far prompter, better informed, and more calibrated regulatory intervention instead of the disorganized response that unfortunately ensued. I think you can take that and apply it equally to long-term mm-hmm. capital, right? I agree. And I, I have to say, I do. I did admire Giancarlo. I still do when he was the head of the CFTC for making the statements that he did in support of innovation. But I just have to ask, I mean, I see this now with, um, you know, he... John Carlos now focused quite publicly on the digital dollar. You have Paul Atkins, who is a board member of the Chamber of Digital Commerce and part of the Token Alliance Working Group. Paul used to be the head of the SEC, right? You've got Jim Newsom, former head of the CFTC, also involved with the Chamber. You've got Jay Clayton now moving to a crypto firm. It's like once they step away from the regulatory position that they're in, they're all very pro-crypto. And I would hope that, you know, it's not, and look, Gensler, as we know, taught a, a course at MIT on blockchain prior to becoming head of the SEC. There is nothing, in my opinion, that should keep a regulator uh, from being supportive of cryptocurrency while they're in that role. Yes, there are uh, many uncertainties, but if you're going to choose to make this your profession outside of your regulatory gig, then there's there's probably something good there, too, that you should be publicly supportive of. But again, yeah, I, absolutely. Feel like, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm ranting here more than I'm thinking and, and no, talking. No, well, but I, but, but I think... The one area we're potentially skipping over is the responsibility the industry Mm -hmm. has itself to self-regulate. Because to a certain extent, given these gaps in age, diversity, everything we've just talked about, and the fact that crypto is a priority among many other priorities for our regulators and politicians, I do think it's Mm -hmm. incumbent on the industry, as we've been talking about, Rumi, you and I since 2013, to self-regulate 
put together best practices, policies, and procedures, and then give that to the regulators so that when they step in, they've got the playbook. That's what I think we as an industry do mm -hmm. need to work on. That is the responsibility that we have on our shoulders that we really need to get going with. And you and I have seen that work. I mean, what, the Board of Trade started right. self-regulating in 1859 and federal legislation didn't happen until 1921. These are not new concepts. Mm -hmm. It works. And I, I also have to say something that I appreciated the last kind of dip that we took in Bitcoin back in May. Soon after, you know, the market picked itself right up again. And you don't have then the stuff that we see in traditional markets about, oh, we need to have this type of panel or this commission to understand what's happening. It's like, no, the, the market's almost like not just corrected themselves because markets are efficient, but because they are coded now to be efficient. And this is where. And there's no bailouts. Yeah, no bailouts. Crypto's free. No bailouts. What, I mean, can you imagine how traditional finance would look if we didn't have the government backstopping it? Mm -hmm. Really? We don't have that in crypto. And so it's really interesting to see what free markets look like. So Rumi, I read a book okay. that I want to talk about. <laughs> so <laughs> I read yeah. this awesome book called The Road Ahead by Bill Gates that he wrote in 1995. I was going to say, is that like 25 years old or something? Okay. So you're 26 years old. Wow. Because I was so curious. What was it like for him in 1995 mm -hmm. at the early nascent days of the internet? And how are things similar and how are they different? And on regulation, Rumi, yeah. they were very similar oh. because government <laughs> was very concerned about encryption. Yeah. And it is interesting where there's a couple times in the book, Gates says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially he says, I feel sorry for our regulators because this technology is inevitable. And that really just mm. struck me because that is what we're dealing with here too. This technology is inevitable. It would be much better if we collaborated, private and public, to get to where we're headed, just like we did with the internet. So that was strikingly similar to me, mm -hmm. just these kind of battles that we're having right now. And right. Gates does talk about how the technology is complicated to understand. And as a young kid, you know, he had a computer and he was obsessed with computers um, and how, mm -hmm. you know, the government just didn't have the same understanding. And that's definitely, you know, happening here, too. But as we know, Microsoft is not or Bill Gates is certainly not a crypto king. So what did he get wrong in his book? He, he's not. So he got two things wrong, I think. Um, in the book, he talks about this concept of a wallet PC that would hold digital currency Mm -hmm. And he also expected that we'd have this internet billing system. But he never goes into detail as to how that would work. And, and I suspect it kind of goes back to Mark Andreessen's comments, where I think the original intent was just money would be built into the open protocols of the internet, that we would mm -hmm. just figure that out. And it's not that they didn't try. So mm -hmm. Visa and Netscape partnered, Microsoft right. partnered with MasterCard because they were trying to build payments directly into the browser right. and it failed. And, and yeah. I think it failed because of regulatory reasons. It failed because they couldn't figure out a way to efficiently process microtransactions. It just didn't work. And that then obviously opened the door for companies like PayPal, Stripe, Spotify to build that bridge from mm -hmm. traditional finance or traditional bank banking rails into the internet, 
But of course, it was all closed. So we right. basically lost, I don't know, what, what is 1995 to uh, 2008 when the Bitcoin white paper was published? 13 years. So we basically lost 13 years of any potential to develop internet money. It just stopped because you couldn't build on closed systems. Then comes mm -hmm. the Bitcoin white paper and it opens it up. So he got that wrong. The other thing, and I don't blame him. I mean, he's one of the smartest guys ever, but he missed that. And the second thing he missed was he really thought the internet was going to be decentralized. He hmm. really did. I don't think he ever foresaw Facebook, Google, Amazon, none of that. He, in fact, said that the internet itself would be the universal middleman. And he talked about this concept of how advertisers would have to figure out what a user's time is worth, and advertiser, or, you know, users would also figure out what their time was worth, and this marketplace would develop, and you'd have electric accounts that were debited and credited based on you know, payment for time, which of course is like the Brave browser now. But he expected it all to be peer-to-peer. -peer. Mm -hmm. I don't think he ever thought we'd live in a world where the internet's predominant revenue model was advertising or monetization of, you know, through monetization of users' private data. Right. So I, I think maybe one thing we could think about when we have these conversations with regulators is maybe all we're doing right now is going back to what the internet was supposed to be in the first place. We're just mm -hmm. re-decentralizing it, but this time it's got money baked into it. Right. I, I always, when I talk to lay people out there who just want to understand what a blockchain is, the way I refer to it is like, you know, when you type into any web, web browser, HTTP, colon, slash, slash, something like hypertext transfer protocol, right? This is just what a P is, or SMTP, right? Or IMAP for email, or FTP. These are just Ps. These are protocols. Blockchain is just another P. But That's right. where before we would transmit something of information, an email being a store of information, in this case, you're just also, you're just transforming a store of value. That's and right. It could be packets whatever you, of information. Whatever That's it. Yeah. Packets of information, now packets of money. It, it's just, it's all data. It's all bits, right? right? Yeah. So there, it's, it's as complicated and as easy as that. You know, it's interesting to see how this has come to be. As, as a result, I rarely, I don't think I ever refer to blockchain as a revolution or crypto as a revolution. It's an evolution of an existing system we've had for a very, very, very long time. That's so true. And, and in that context, the other thing that stood out to me in Gates's book, about three quarters of the book, Rumi, is devoted to all of the physical mm -hmm. infrastructure that had to be laid before you could get to any kind of a commercial internet. And to your point about this being an evolution, well, all blockchain technology is doing is using the internet itself to evolve. And that's why we're moving so much faster too, right? We don't have to lay any of that physical mm -hmm. infrastructure. But it is just an evolution. Right. We're putting into the internet right. something that should have been there in the first place, re-decentralizing and evolving. It's not that scary. It's a good thing. And to the point you made earlier, it just opens up the doors for anyone in the world with an internet connection. Male, female, who cares, your age, they, them, everyone. So it doesn't, it's everyone. And that's a good thing. We should embrace that. And that's the other point, I guess, is right now we hear the regulators talking about risk, risk, risk. Well, anytime you talk about risk, that's only half of the mm -hmm. equation. The other half is benefit. So somehow we need to turn the narrative. Right. Yes, this presents new risks, but that's okay because it mitigates lots of other risks and it has all these benefits. So yes, we need to work on these new risks. We'll figure them out collectively, but let's embrace 
the benefits. Well, it is our pleasure to welcome to the podcast Perry Ann Boring, founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Welcome, Perry Ann. It's wonderful to have you with us. Yeah, it's so good to see both of you. Romy Colleen, congrats on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, for those listeners who probably don't know, Perry Ann has been a terrific supporter of Colleen and me as we have evolved this podcast. And so we're really grateful to her for her feedback. Um, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Colleen and I are both proud advisory board members at the Chamber of Digital Commerce. But I think that our listeners really want to hear about how it all began to begin with. I mean, you are one of the true pioneers in this space. How did you get involved and think that the Chamber of Digital Commerce was something that you wanted to do? Well, to be honest, this, this is not exactly what I wanted to do. It just kind of came okay. together <laughs> like that. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, I mean, I first heard about Bitcoin. It's, it's been a decade now. I was working on Capitol Hill uh, and in 2011, uh, one of the signature pieces of legislation that I worked on was the Jobs Act, uh, which brought us crowdfunding and peer-to-peer -peer lending. And I was a pretty outspoken supporter on the Hill um, about that. And uh, one of my colleagues said, hey, I know, you know you're really into this whole idea of crowdfunding. So I, I love the idea of how that can bring uh, access to people who typically would not have access to the capital markets and really leveling the playing field. And they're like, okay, if you like this, I really think you're going to like this thing called Bitcoin. And from the moment I heard that there was this virtual currency out there in cyberspace, that it was not issued by the government or controlled by any kind of particular organization or corporation or entity, um, that concept was truly fascinating to me, especially somebody working in finance and economic policy. Um, so I just really studied it kind of on my own, you know, fell down the rabbit hole like the rest of us. I think I'm still in that mm -hmm. rabbit hole a decade later, still learning every single day. Um, but I, I ultimately became convinced that this is the most important technology I will see in my lifetime and just really wanted to contribute to helping it succeed. So then I kind of had to do my own uh, like internal uh, analysis on how I can support this ecosystem. Um, and you have to also understand back in like 2011, 2012, 2013, most of the people working in this space were technical people, developers. Right. Um, which is not my skill set at all. So, uh, you know, I, I work in public policy. That's kind of where I've dedicated my time in my career. Um, so it, it took a little bit of soul searching to kind of figure out what is now the chamber today. Uh, but 2013 was really that year that I, I had that aha moment. Um, so kind of re rewinding back in history uh, a number of years, 2013 was a really exciting year for Bitcoin. So up until 2013, it was really just this kind of crazy experiment that cypherpunks were talking about on the internet. There, what It really hadn't taken off. Um, that was the year that Cyprus went through their bailout with the EU. Um, and there was a lot of questions on... Um, was Cyprus going to leave the EU, a lot of economic uncertainty, and people in Cyprus started buying Bitcoin, and that made international headlines. And that is about the time where Bitcoin went from, I think it started the year trading around like $100 a coin, and it went up to $1,300. That was like the first like big run up. And it was all around yeah. that whole story. 
Um, and for me, again, that was really exciting because it really showed that people did see value in an alternative system. And we were actually seeing that play out in a real world instance. Um, but then there were some like not so great things that happened that year. Uh, the two main ones were Silk, uh, Silk Road, the online marketplace um, that would shut down. And then Mt. Gox, two very, very big black eyes to the industry that I think we're still reputationally recovering from today. Uh, but it's it's funny you say 2013 was an important year. I'd also argue it's important because not only did you start focusing on blockchain, but Colleen and I did too. <laughs> There's something about all those things in 2013. And, and despite like the big black eye, I remember how much attention also in Washington, even if it was for a brief moment, but all of a sudden everyone did say, oh, what is this Bitcoin thing? So I have to assume that it might have been an opening for you to build the chamber um, Despite the black eyes, it was as you know as they say. Sometimes it's better to be talked badly about than not to be talked about at all. This was a this was a headlight onto Bitcoin and everything that was going to be coming our way. Yeah, I mean, when we saw the regulators responding to things like Silk Road and Mt. Gox, I remember the the Bit License, which at the time uh, the, the 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 superintendent of of the New York Department of Financial Services was Ben Lasky, and he's he said multiple times the whole reason he started the whole Bit License pro process was because of what happened at Mt. Gox in Japan. Um, so you can just see how these types of things can create regulatory risk and can cause the policy community to respond and react. And as somebody who's you know, worked in public policy my entire career, you don't want policy being created out of fear. You wanna go through a sophisticated mm -hmm. process where mm -hmm. stakeholders come together and you really think through that very, very careful balance of protecting against consumer protections, investor protections, illicit activity, all those things. But you don't wanna stifle innovation and development of something very promising. And when people are regulating out of fear, a lot of times that balance will get off. So that's kind of where the idea of the chamber came forward. It really was needed. Um, I was telling a lot of people in the industry, hey, you guys should come to DC. There's hearings about you. Maybe you should come and like state your case because I really don't think people are understanding this. And uh, nobody else was in DC. There was no one else. You know, most of the people in this industry were either in Silicon Valley or in Asia or elsewhere. Um, and so I, you know, I felt very much like if I, if we didn't do this, if we didn't start the chamber, then um, nobody else would. And um, there, there were significant challenges for this space. So we ended up launching in 2014. The rest is history. We've been very busy ever since. Um, and we are preparing for a very busy next year or so with um, all the new people who are now getting settled into their new roles um, in DC. Yeah, so and Perianne, I remember I was at the Chicago McCormick Place on July 19th, 2014, when you announced the creation oh of the chamber. I, I didn't I realize you were there, there for that. Yes, I was there. And I loved it because all the while, you know, since Rumi and I started in the space, I was just wondering, what are we going to do? How are the regulators and policymakers right. going to react? And then when you announced that, I'm like, well, this is what we're going to do. Great. <laughs> so. You know who else was so, so, there at that? So we, we, want, we announced the chamber at 
uh, a conference, the North American Bitcoin Conference in Chicago. Um, and who else was in there? I didn't hear this story until very recently, but was CZ. And this was, of course, obviously way before he started Binance. But he said, I got up and I made my announcement. And then he was on the panel right after me. And everybody left the room to go talk to me. And he was there. Oh, with that's a great story. <laughs> no, and I, re I remember the turn now at this point. <laughs> well, it, it's it's funny. I you know I remember that conference so well too. I was there too. Isn't that funny? And uh, I remember when Vitalik was there as well. Just these early days and seeing how much has changed. We know how much has changed from a technology perspective. Perry Ann, from a Washington D.C. perspective, like how has the needle moved? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's changed uh, in such a big way. So when we were just okay. getting started, again, this was right after this huge scandal of Silk Road. And literally, pe the only thing people knew about Bitcoin was that people were buying illegal drugs with it and the online. And, and the, the, the overall perception is that this was just a currency for criminals and no other use other than that. And we had a hard time getting meetings. Um, a, a lot of people just didn't take this seriously. They they didn't see any potential in it and really wanted nothing to do with it. Um, it's funny, the very first member of Congress that I was able to convince to actually sit down and learn about this was Mick Mulvaney. Um, at the time, he was representing a district from South Carolina. And of course, he left the Hill to go work in the White House and he ran the CFPB for, a t for some time. And now he's, he's out of government and he's serving on our board of advisors um, today. Um, and he started the Blockchain Caucus when he was on the Hill as well. Um, but today we've gone from, you know, absolutely very little understanding to we have a lot of people who have taken the time to get educated. They understand the potential of this technology, the role it's going to play in the international financial monetary system over time. And they want to make sure that the U.S. has a leading role in this sector. Um, and kind of beyond that, we've kind of gone uh, past people having no understanding to being able to actually talk about the policy issues in substance. So that was definitely one of the biggest kind of boulders we had to roll up the hill was just leveling the education because you can't get into fixing policy if people just have no idea what you're talking about to begin with. Um, so, you know, today we have the Congressional Blockchain Caucus is over 20 members of Congress that are in that. There's about 20 members of Congress that are actually accepting cryptocurrencies for their campaigns today as well. The agencies uh, do have um, pretty strong technical knowledge, um, especially in law enforcement, those who have really been on the front lines of those types of issues. So the, the, the knowledge gap is, is closing. There's still a lot of work to do. Um, and we're definitely into a much more sophisticated um, space today than we were seven years ago. Um, when we just got started. And that cuts both ways, because as people get more sophisticated, they kind of see it from both sides. So that's a big part of what we're balancing today at the okay. chamber. Yeah, I appreciate that background. Prior to you joining us, Colleen and I were talking about regulation. I have to admit, I was ranting a lot, thinking that the regulators and policymakers are still woefully behind. But when you frame it like this, I am myself reminded of how far they have come um, in the in the past seven years. And you know, I've got to be hopeful, or maybe it's just my own nature to be hopeful that more people in Washington will understand the benefits from crypto. But I have to say, like, I feel like there's a lot of regulatory headwinds right now uh, in the United States in particular. I'd be curious from your standpoint, 
um, for the reasons to be hopeful amongst regulators and legislators and also in the state governments. I feel like that many people look at the U.S. as a little bit behind when it comes to crypto regulation. So what are you hopeful about when it comes to U.S. regulation? All right, I'm going to um, just read a quote uh, from Michael Saylor's talk um, that he gave at um, our parallel event um, this week. I, I would like to shamelessly plug a parallel event being a great conference series that, that, that the chamber has. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, Rumi has graced us with her, her presence there. Michael Saylor was at the last one. Um, Colleen, we've got you on deck for the DeFi event. <laughs> um, so he said, uh, I, I thought this kind of explains a good way to think about how, wh why we should be so optimistic. He said, I don't think there's any other asset where every intelligent person who understands it decides to do everything they can to make it more valuable. So again, I kind of mentioned the importance of education where a lot of people, especially policymakers, their first impression of blockchain and crypto is what they're reading in the news, what's, what's hitting these headlines. And we call that headline risk, um, where they read an article that may be wrong or incorrect or just highly sensational that this technology is bad for some reason. Criminals are abusing it for nefarious purposes as an environmental disaster, whatever. But once someone takes the time to get beyond the headline and actually start understanding what this is, again, the role it's going to play in the global financial and monetary system over time, how important it's going to be. Um, once people start to understand it, it's really hard to be a skeptic. Um, and actually, it reminds me of a quote Jason Weinstein, another one of our advisory board members, said at a congressional briefing that we did on um, AML issues. He's, and he, and, and um, Jason used to work in the Department of Justice. And he said, um, I've met a lot of Bitcoin skeptics and I've met a lot of people who know a lot about Bitcoin, but I've never met someone who knows a lot about Bitcoin and is a skeptic. So again, it's that educational piece that's so important to promoting the future of this technology and getting the policy right. So we're in the business of winning hearts and minds. You've got to inspire somebody to want to take the time to understand this beyond what they're reading in a headline. And if you're able to do that, I believe we will get to um, a really promising place. So we are gonna have challenges. It's gonna be a very controversial next year or so, I think in Washington on these topics, cause there's a lot going on. Um, but I think at the other end of this, um, we will come out in a really amazing space. I, I really appreciate that. It, it inspires me, makes me feel good. Uh, but I also have to ask, you know, I enjoy watching you on the news, whether you're on you know, Fox News or, or some of these early morning shows talking about Bitcoin. So I'm curious about your experiences there when it comes to educating just the mass population The knows may have heard just a little bit of crypto. Like what messages are they seeing? People that may not have enough time to be educated. How, how do you feel you know, the general population out there understands and accepts the notion of a cryptocurrency? Yeah, so I've done um, quite a bit of interviews with Fox Business and CNBC and uh, Bloomberg over the past several months. Um, and just the fact mm -hmm. that they're covering this on network broadcast news is encouraging because we've been pitching stories to them for a very long time. And they're really just now starting to cover regular beats on crypto. So that just in itself tells you one thing. Um, also, there are different journalists 
who have their own kind of opinions about this. And again, I'll say that the headline risk is a big deal. I, mean, I spoke, I was speaking with a big investment firm who has significant investments in DeFi um, earlier this week. And they kept talking about, you know, every time something happens in DC, you see these crazy articles in the news. Some of them are, you know, they're highly sensational and that it impacts our investments. And so like, they need to understand like why that's happening, when it's going to happen, how do they protect against what they're calling this headline risk? Um, what we're, what I have found is that there's a number of journalists who they're starting to cover this more regularly. And as they're meeting with people like us at the chamber and other experts, they're starting to understand these more deeply and they're, they're covering this in a, a much more thoughtful way. So one person I'll highlight is Maria Bartiromo, whom I, I, I absolutely admire and I've always looked up to. I'm a former, former journalist myself. Um, and she's highly regarded and respected in the financial services circles and has some of the best ratings um, in the US um, for her, her shows. Um, when I first started interviewing with her, um, you know, she, it was very much like question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. She has a question, I answer, she reads the next one. And now we banter back and forth with each other because I can tell she herself is getting a lot more comfortable. Um, I also did a show uh, or an interview with Neil Cavuto a couple weeks ago, and they asked me about these environmental issues around Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, by the time we got through the interview, he said, I understand that these are um, messaging problems. There's not actually an environmental disaster. It's people don't understand it and the way it's being messaged is incorrect. And he on air said that. Um, so as we're engaging with the media more and they're learning, we're coming out on top. We still have a lot more work to do, but we are making a lot of prog progress um, in the mainstream media. So that, that is encouraging too. But, I, you know, I think we're always going to have skeptics to some level. One of the things Colleen and I were talking about prior to you joining us was the fact that it seems like the crypto markets are evolving so fast, not just in terms of technology, but in their self-regulation. Like I personally was kind of taken aback pleasantly after that last dip in Bitcoin back in May 19, how quickly the markets kind of recovered and just kept on functioning. Like normally in a traditional market with such a crash, there would be a commission. You'd have a panel trying to understand what would happen to it. Maybe there'd be a bailout of some sort. Like that's not, that doesn't exist here. And increasingly there's a sophistication that's almost coded into crypto market trading at this point so that you know, these, these bumps that normally you would expect a regulator to look into, we just move on from them. I was wondering if you would agree or disagree with the statement that, you know, crypto is just leapfrogging the need for regulation, for centralized government regulation through its own technology innovation. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Our, our stance at the chamber is uh, regulation should be technology neutral. You should not regulate technologies themselves, you should regulate companies that are providing services and applications involving them. Um, when it comes okay. to um, the markets, you know, I think where we currently are today, um, you know, I, I do think Bitcoin is still undervalued. And there's a couple models that um, I know you guys probably look at these too, uh, but a number of investors that we represent at the chamber in terms of like, how do you value Bitcoin? And there's a big difference between price and value. Um, and a lot of times we are very focused on the price 
Uh, and regulators are focused on the price. The conversations we have in DC are about the price. The media is like constantly reporting on the price, but the price is not the most important thing to look at. It's it's the actual value. And there's a few valuation models um, that investors in this space rely on. Um, the first is Metcalf's law. Um, and actually Metcalf's law was actually created by one of our other advisory board members, George Gilder, to, to measure the network of telephones. Like how powerful is a telephone network? Um, and we've taken that, um, actually I think it's um, Fundstrat who took that and applied it to crypto. Um, and today Metcalf's law has Bitcoin at about $62,000 and the price is at time of recording around 40. Um, the other is stock to flow. And of course, stock to flow, um, actually, maybe I have this backwards. Stock to flow is at one, is at 63,000. And then Metcalf's is at 112,000. Um, so, I mean, in terms of uh, like, when do you buy? When do you sell? Um, these are some of the models that people use. Do we need regulation for this? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, people have to come up with their own um, ways in which that they want to kind of decide when to buy, when to sell. Um, of course, a lot of us subscribe to the HODL theory of buy and, you know, be prepared mm -hmm. to hold for five plus mm -hmm. years. Um, and actually, it even reminds me of something Plan B put out the other day. He, he grabbed a chart and he said, no one in the history of Bitcoin who has bought Bitcoin and held it for at least 10 years has lost money. Um, so again, like the volatility piece is something that's constantly comes up in conversations that I have, um, but there's a, a massive opportunity and, you, and obviously you don't have opportunity with, without risk um, and volatility is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, volatility is trending upwards. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't, I, I don't know like why you necessarily need regulation for these specific things. I think, you know, obviously you need to be. Uh, educated. The first rule of investing is don't invest in things you don't understand. Uh, but I see this as the greatest investment opportunity I think we will ever see in our lifetimes. And the more people that understand that, I think the more excited people get um, and getting, you know, everyone else to kind of understand where that is, it is currently where we are. But once everybody understands it, the investment opportunity is over. So I feel like we're in the best kept secret today. And uh, uh, you know, getting the rest of um, the benefits of this technology from financial inclusion and um, all the other benefits uh, in terms of an architecture perspective um, uh, implemented because uh, this really is going to change the way money, finance, things of value are traded in the future. So it, it's, it, it's super exciting. And um, I think these regulatory friction points are going to level out over time. So Perry, and for... For everyone that's listening right now, wants to learn a little bit more about the chamber, what are ways that they can get involved? What initiatives or programs do you have in place right now um, for both startups or larger financial institutions that would like to work with you? Yeah, so the chamber, we're a membership organization. We're a nonprofit. Um, all those who are uh, investing and innovating with this technology are welcome to join and apply on the website at digitalchamber.org. Or we represent companies, large and small, financial institutions, technology companies, and everything in between. Uh, ways in which you can get involved today, we have a couple active working groups. So we do encourage active participation um, from our members. I'll just highlight those working groups quickly. We have our AML task force, so we're working on a number of topics with uh, FinCEN here domestically and FATF internationally on the AML considerations for digital assets. 
We also have a tax task force. So a lot of areas where we need greater tax clarity and tax certainty. Uh, so for those who are interested in, in helping work through tax policy issues, we have a group for you too. Um, and then we also have a, um, a working group called the Token Alliance. Uh, both Colleen and Rumi participate in that group. Um, there are, are one of the goals is clarifying the jurisdiction of digital assets. There's a lot of friction points between the SEC and the CFTC's jurisdiction. So we're working through that, um, as well as other topics that would go through those agencies, um, including things like digital securities, custody, we're uh, working through Commissioner Purse's uh, safe harbor for a digital asset proposal. Um, so there's a lot of different things that we're involved with. We do have a pretty sophisticated policy platform um, underway. All members are encouraged to be active, but then also helping with this education. So the education piece is never over. We spend a lot of time working with members of Congress, their staff, the different um, and relevant committees on Capitol Hill. So we do also encourage people to join us for those types of meetings, You know, meet with your congressperson, meet with your representatives, let them know you have a business in their district, let them know the amount of jobs that you are contributing to your local economy, help them understand why this technology is important, help them understand the friction points you have as a business. All of that helps. Um, so uh, again, we, we welcome all those who want to contribute to growing this ecosystem. And we have lots of ways for people to get involved today. Perianne, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Really, I found your, I found your comments really inspiring and very hopeful. As, as someone who likes to be optimistic, honestly, I've been struggling a little bit thinking about uh, the landscape in the U.S. in particular as it relates to policy, but you really helped to put it all in perspective. And I also thank you for your leadership at the Chamber for all the work that we do, because I know that we would not have been able to reach these milestones without you and your team and the work that you're doing. So thank you for that. Um, we always like to close these podcasts with some rapid fire questions. I, I hope that you're ready. If I throw you a couple. I am not ready. Here. I don't know what they are. So. Well, it's funny because I'm going to make up the third one. I don't even have it in my head yet. So let's see what comes out of my mouth. Um, okay. So the first is what year, maybe the first, for the first team, what year will the following happen? Okay. So what year will this happen? The Federal Reserve launches a U.S. central bank digital currency. What year would you, do you guess that's going to happen? I would guess we're at least three to five years out. Um, there's a lot that has to go into launching that. Uh, China has probably the most sophisticated CBDC project underway. They've spent over five years, probably six now, building the, the digital yuan. So the U.S. hasn't gotten started yet. We do know that. So I, you know, we're good at playing catch up because we do have significant resources. Um, but I think it's at least three to five years out. Unless they partner with USDC or DM and get there faster. Correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would advocate public-private partnership something as important as money where we need to secure it. So we've got a lot of experts in we this space that can help accelerate dollar. that. Why do we need a Fed issue? Right. Yeah, that's it's true. Uh, that is true. Big part of the conversation for sure. So what year will this happen? A U.S. president, not presidential candidate, but a U.S. president publicly embraces Bitcoin. I think we can see that as early in the next race. As a, So, you know, I don't know if I, I, I don't feel like Biden's there. I don't know if he's going to get there. But whoever's after him, I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll have another election in four years, another one in eight years. Um I think by the next one, the, the 48 years from, so actually if you do an S curve analysis on Bitcoin, 
we're at about 20% adoption today. Um, we're expected to be at 90% adoption around 2029. So, you know, government's a reflection of the people. We have 90% of American households owning cryptocurrencies by 2029. I just don't know how you would have, you know, the leader of the country not also kind of understanding that and supporting that. So I, th I think it's sooner rather than later. And Rumi, by 2030, oh. we have half the voting public, millennials and younger. So I think that ties right in with what Perry- And over 50% of millennials today in the US own some form of cryptocurrency. I love it. Can't wait. Although I, I don't, I, I'd like to stay young myself. <laughs> Everyone else can get older. So I can still be with the cool kids using crypto. Uh, so, so the last question then, I'll flip it a little bit. So um, in 10 years, what U.S. city will be the crypto capital of the world? Oh, okay. Well, as a native Floridian, um, I, my hopes are on Miami. I think they're already doing a pretty good job. Mayor Suarez has done, yeah. you know, provided a lot of leadership to attract a lot of great businesses to the state of Florida. Um, Texas, I think, is shortly behind. I was born in Texas, so my heart is kind of there as well. Um, but then, of course, you know, we're seeing really cool stuff happening in Wyoming. But I, I kind of feel like uh, Florida may, may take the may take the lead. I'm, I'm currently based in Florida. I grew up here and it's pretty amazing what we're seeing. Um, and just to share a quick conversation I had with Mayor Suarez uh, the other week when I was in Miami, you know, I asked him about this bill in New York that um, you know, wants to propose banning Bitcoin mining in the state of New York. The bill failed, by the way. Um, so we we're it's dead for the rest of the year. Um, but I said, what do you think about this? He's like, you know what? It's great. If New York wants to ban Bitcoin mining, awesome. We'll just welcome everybody to the state of Florida. So I love the attitude. I uh, certainly yeah. don't want to see Bitcoin mining banned anywhere in the United States. But I think it's that type of leadership that is, you know, what you need to attract businesses to a particular jurisdiction. So we'll see. But right. yeah. It's like BitLicense 2.0, but in the form of banning mining, right? Mining, New York just does whatever it can to drive crypto out of the state. Well, and the only, that's the only answer I've disagreed with this entire show is I think Chicago <laughs> should be in that list too. Otherwise, I agree with everything you said. You do have your New York hat on right now, Rumi. I mean, Colleen. I know, I know. Colleen's wearing a Yankees cap. She's advocating for Chicago. One of the reasons I threw out the question out there is obviously not only we're we talking about, you know, changes uh, with this technology and in policy, but also we're, we're, it's not just the traditional New York City or Silicon Valley anymore. This is opportunity for everyone everywhere. And it's great to see states like Florida and Texas and Wyoming really start to attract innovation in this financial space that maybe you wouldn't normally think of, you know, so Wyoming is a financial center. This is what Bitcoin and crypto can do for your state and for your economy. So again, thank you so much, Perry Ann. As always, thank awesome you. to talk with Absolutely. you. It's a pleasure. Thank I you, Perry Ann. Oh, no, thank you, guys. Well, we've reached the end of another show, Colleen. As always, it was a great pleasure speaking with you and sharing thoughts. Thank you, Rumi. It was a lot of fun. This was a good one. And for those who want to learn more and listen again, please visit our website, openoutcrypto.com. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a great rating. Uh, we also have a newsletter. Uh, you can find us at openoutcrypto.substack.com where we will be 
diving a little bit deeper into some of the topics that you've heard us discuss here on this podcast. And as always, if you want to reach out to us, we welcome all of your feedback. Uh, please send a message to info at openoutcrypto.com. I also wanted to mention that Outlier Ventures Basecamp program is open and seeking applications for its next cohort. And we also have announced Outlier has teamed up with Protocol Labs to launch the Filecoin Basecamp, which is the first ever collaboration accelerator between Filecoin and Outlier. The program is going to fast track the development of 40 exceptional startups that leverage Filecoin. To find out more or answer any questions, please reach out to any members of the Outlier Ventures team, www.outlierventures.io. Thanks for listening to Open Out Crypto. Please reach out to us on Twitter at OpenOutCrypto and by email at info at OpenOutCrypto.com. Check out our website for show notes and other information about the show, our hosts, and our guests. Thanks for listening.